Hey folks, this is Brian. Do you like listening to the commentary tracks on movies? Well, we know we do. So you know what you can do? You can tune in to us at Nerdonomy.com on March 2nd at 5.30 p.m. to listen to our live Oscar podcast. That's right. For the second year in a row, we are going to be giving the Academy Awards the nerds on film treatment that you know and love. Tune in. It'll be awesome. Thanks. Brian, can I ask you a question? Sure. Do you think I'm funny? No. At least you're honest. And you know, a lot of our listeners have given a little bit of feedback saying that my puns sometimes are a little a little grating. I, I personally feel like there's nothing wrong with them at all, but I take feedback well, and I feel like tonight I'm ready to redeem myself. Okay. Okay. So what are you going to do? I'm going to tell a joke. I'm going to tell a joke. It's going to be a funny joke. I'm going to tell a joke. Okay? All right. Go ahead. All right. So there's a table, and on the table are two olives. Now, one of them starts to roll off and falls off the end of the table, and the other one rolls over to him to the edge and screams down, Hey, you okay? And uh, the other one screams back, I'll live! <laughs> you thought I wasn't going to do a pun. You thought I was actually going to redeem myself. You are wrong. I have nothing to redeem myself over. Nothing. Puns are the most evolved form of humor, and they are going to stay on this podcast for as long as I am alive. As long as you're alive, huh? Yeah. As long as you're alive. That's right. Be careful what you wish for. No! All right. Wait, okay, where did we put Judy Garland? Welcome to Nerds on History. I am Eric Brickmont. And I am now a murderer. Yeah, I am the ghost of Eric Brickmont. Back I am, to still uh, give you funny puns. I am Brian Moriarty, as usual. It's funny, why would I say as usual? It's like implying, oh, well, my person, my dominant personality today is Brian. <laughs> but, you know, usually on Sundays, it's Dylan. But every so often, he comes out when you least expect it. I like Dylan. He's cool. Here's the game, listeners. Are we kidding? And the answer is yes. <laughs> we are yes, totally we kidding. Are kidding. Okay, Everyone so you're game. you and, and I'm me. And, uh, and the table's a table. The table's a table, and this mic stand is excellent. And we are... We are here. We are recording, as always, every week, here in the Nerd Cave. And uh, speaking of weeks, how was yours? I've had better. Yeah. <laughs> I'd just be honest. Uh, yeah, it's just a stressful time at work, you know. You're doing fine, though. Thankfully, I have this. This podcast always centers me. That's good. That's good. I feel the same way. I really do. It's a busy time for me, too. I've got a new baby on the way just about any time now, really. Sometime in the next couple Eric, of weeks. You might actually have to like leave this episode. We might you could actually have to stop recording and go and we'd be screwed because you're way more prepared for this episode than I <laughs> than Pretty I much. Am. I don't think that'll happen this week, but quite honestly, by the time we record next week and the week after, yeah. That could very realistically happen. In fact, I will be gone. I don't know if we've talked about that or not. If we haven't, then I should probably tell people that I will not be here for the month of March. I will be bonding with my little one, and I've decided to take a little time away from the podcast to be with my, my new baby. For the record, you've only ever missed one episode of Nerds on History. That's right. I was sick. Right. That was the one time I, I got that really, really bad flu last year, and uh, you had to do it uh, solo on Valentine's Day. Yeah. You got people covered to cover for me when I was taking my little little leave of absence, but... Um... But it hasn't really been the other way around. No, it hasn't. But that's okay, because we're going to have um, a theme month that month. Uh, it's all the episodes Eric really, really wanted to do. 
That's a joke. <laughs> it's all of our mystery episodes. Mysteries from history. And we'll have a mystery guest host each week uh, who will be filling in for me until my eventual return. There will be still strangely familiar at the same time. Yes. Why don't we get into some listener feedback? This week in listener feedback. Our first piece of feedback comes to us from Lauren. Lauren, thank you. Uh, this was from her Facebook. It says... As I enjoy today's latest installment of Nerds on History, I was reminded of an article I read recently uh, that I think you may be interested in. It's about talks for a superhero movie in which the terracotta soldiers in the Qing Mausoleum come to life to save the world from alien invasion. And she gives us this link to uh, an article that The Guardian ran that talks about it. Uh, your thoughts. Although I am all for a, fict a fictional movie based on these soldiers which I have always found fascinating. I am not sure I am a huge fan of this spin on things, and personally, I think a time travel movie would be highly appropriate. Finally, the cathedral you are thinking of that is still in construction is the La Sagrada Familia in Barcelona. I had a feeling it was Spanish. It is uh, one of Gaudi's most recognizable works and has had various production bumps like the Spanish Civil War and Gaudi's untimely death. It's considered the perpetual cathedral now, and uh, its construction is part of its identity. Uh, thanks for your time and your wonderful podcasts. I look forward to each week of both shows. I'm always open to film ideas, even if they're an unorthodox take or even a historically inaccurate take on a subject, because film is always meant to tell a story. It sometimes deviates from, from reality, and it's very hard to reconcile that when you're trying to use things that we know for a fact took place at a certain place in a certain time. That's my, my take on it. And plus, you know me, I love superheroes, so that'd be I'm always open to that, that concept. I feel mostly the opposite of that. And I think that uh, there's a little foreshadowing coming into our topic for this evening. Foreshadowing. <laughs> Something is going to happen, folks, and it's going to involve movies. That would be an awesome superhero right there, the foreshadower. I like that. Well, there's the shadow. Yeah, this is the foreshadower. He just so goes around predicting that things like, will like, eventually happen. This is. I'm going to make an Eric Brickmont pun. So there's the shadow, and then there is his father, the foreshadow. <laughs> <clears throat> See? That's funny. Maybe I should just leave the puns up to you then, I guess. Folks, we'll let you be the judge of no, that. No, don't do that, because they're <laughs> going to send them to you. <laughs> I don't know. Honestly, for me, movies that are based on a true story, those are the things that I get most upset about when they deviate. Movies that are that are based in historical fiction, I don't have a problem with that. I really don't. So the idea of terracotta soldier superheroes actually sounds kind of fun. It sounds like it could be something entertaining. I don't think I would learn much from it. I don't think they would probably spend the budget to do enough research to show any kind of accurate recreation of the artist workshops or something like that. Something that I would appreciate. But uh, I'd still pay a couple of bucks to go see something like that. Fair enough. But yeah, those are my two cents. Do with them as you will. Well, fair enough. And I think we'll get into this a little more in depth as we get into the actual content for the episode. So. Yeah. Today's um, topic is going to definitely herald back to this. So I, I've got a piece of listener feedback then. Uh, this comes from Dave. He was commenting on our uh, Seven Wonders double feature that we did. And uh, he says a couple of comments. I too visited the Acropolis under the heavy influence of cheap booze. After many visits, sober and several stages of not sober, I can say that a bit of booze does help the experience. Uh, he also says, uh, commenting about pigs, and I think this actually heralds back to 
the episode that we did uh, with um, Maureen. No, it was referring to me saying you were happier than a pig in oh, excrement. That's what it was. Okay, well, well, excrement and slop are two different things. And then he clarifies that. Uh, pigs are actually clean animals. Uh, a pig in feed brought byproducts would actually be unhappy. Uh, I think the saying started as a pig in slop, meaning slop meaning food. And what it is is vegetables and fruits and, right. and corn and things like that that's all just kind of leftovers and table scraps and stuff that's thrown into the trough for the pigs to eat. Yeah. Uh, if you see pigs laying in a runny brown matter, it is likely mud in an attempt to control their body temperature uh, or to get some sunscreen so to kind of cool themselves off. Yeah. Pigs are actually very intelligent animals. Very, very intelligent animals. Very intelligent and actually quite clean. I think he makes an excellent point. It's not so much their excrement you should be concerned about. It's the fact that they are just kind of messy eaters. Yeah. They're messy but clean. That makes sense. Uh, Anyway, he finishes by saying, thanks for the mind food. Dave, we hope you are well fed. We are providers of mind food. I like that. Kind of a mind food grocery store in a sense. We have all the different sections laid out. You know, every episode is a little different. We take you down a different aisle. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going with that. Going down the analogy route. So when are we going to do the proverbial Cheetos episode? (laughs) Uh, We need to do a history topic that is spicy and terrible for you. Drugs, maybe? I don't know. (laughs) The history of drugs? Folks, that's your cue. Go. Send us feedback. What would be the Cheetos episode? (laughs) Of Nerds on History. What would be the history equivalent of Cheetos? Of Cheetos, exactly. All right. Processed, artificial. Bad for you. And yet enjoyable yeah strangely alluring there you go yeah so let's get on to the actual topic for tonight and what was the thing that motivated us to do this episode a movie a movie a movie that we saw on your what on my birthday on your birthday it was actually the day after but fair enough fair enough it was in celebration of of the year uh, or the day of your birth yeah yeah so um the monuments men the monuments men yeah produced written and directed and starred in by george clooney Mm -hmm. who honestly is is a very good director uh i've enjoyed a lot of his other work that he's done i think he's a good actor i have some reservations about this movie and we'll talk about those later but all in all when we went to the movie i i think i had a an enjoyable experience i left the movie happy yeah i was entertained however with that said and I do have to state that I, I've said on this program before that I'm a bit of a World War II buff, but I have to admit that I really didn't have a whole lot of knowledge about the Nazi plunder of Europe in terms of priceless artifacts and art um, and the sheer amount of intentional destruction that was done to monuments. I had a passing knowledge of it. I had knowledge of it in the context of the war itself, but I don't think I had a, a deep or intimate knowledge of it until researching this topic. And now that I've done that, after seeing the movie, I have to admit that um, I'm a little disappointed with the film. Okay. It's given me a different perspective on it, and I was entertained because it was a, a good movie in the sense that it entertained me, but I think that it is a bit misleading to the overall message of who the Monuments Men were, and I'm hoping that this episode will help kind of clarify that. Yeah, well, see, for me, yeah, I agree. It, was a, I, it wasn't a fantastic film, but it was enjoyable. I never go into a movie expecting to learn something, unless it's going to a documentary. So I wasn't looking at it as a historical film. I was looking at it as a movie that just happened to have historical elements built into it. I think that education and entertainment go hand in hand. I think that's what makes this podcast as popular as it is. And I feel like 
if you have the opportunity to captivate a large audience, which is what you do in a major motion picture, more so than you do in a documentary film, because let's face it, documentary films don't have that kind of wide release that gets put out there like these other movies. They don't have the same budget. They don't have big name actors, except for the occasional popular narrator who does it. But you don't really have that same allure and draw. So I almost feel like when you do do a major motion picture that is based in history, it's your responsibility to be as close to that actual content as possible because of the amount of people that you're drawing it. I mean, yes, there is that argument as well. And I and I can see what you're, what you're getting at. And I, I shouldn't say that movies aren't educational, but I think you can learn, you learn different things. You learn more about the human experience. You learn more about the human condition through films. And there's definitely that to be said from this movie. I mean, you can't look at the Third Reich and not learn about how tremendously terrible the Nazi party was toward everybody in Europe. Yeah. You know, toward their whole agenda was... Towards well, their own citizens. Exactly. Was just completely myopic from one, but two, just so... Let's just say it. It is an unprecedented scale of barbarism. Yeah. It has never been paralleled anywhere in history before, and it may very well and hopefully never be outdone again. There you go. And it wasn't just one man. It was a whole group of people who were like-minded and equally as uh, deranged as Hitler was. Yeah, it was, a, it was a terrible ideology that spread through a very desperate nation coming out of a very desperate time uh, who adopted it quite blindly and led to some of the single worst uh, acts of barbarism in human history. I mean, I don't know any other way of really saying it. And we hear a lot about the extreme loss of life. We hear about the 70 million people who died during this war. We hear about the fact that the Jews as a population in Europe were almost completely eradicated. Um, we hear about the terrible atrocities committed against anyone who did not fit that theology's archetype as being the perfect dramatic person. And yet there is the quote that George Clooney says, which is really the crux of the movie, right? right. That's the message of the film, which is that you can kill a person, but they will still be remembered. If you take away not only their life, but you take away every bit of their cultural identity, their art, their possessions, their architecture, it's as if they were never there to begin with. Yeah, they, they simply disappear. Imagine the, the great civilizations of the ancient world. Greece, Egypt, Mesopotamia, uh, you know, some of these very famous ones that we hear about. Imagine the same thing happened to them and nothing was left of them. What would be there to inspire us to investigate and have to dig deeper to find out who they were? There'd be nothing. They well, would disappear. Let's pose a, um, a pseudo-historical question here, more of a futuristic question. What if that happened to us? What if there was some tyrannical power who was hell-bent on destroying America? Not to say that there aren't forces that are trying to do that <laughs> already. <laughs> but let's say someone was actually powerful enough to succeed. You're talking about Justin Bieber specifically, right? Exactly. Yeah. No, no, I'm not talking about Bieber. Uh, I'm not even necessarily implying Al-Qaeda either, though they're the one that is, at least what the media says, is the most prominent threat to America. Let's, for argument's sake, say that America was able to be completely overpowered by another power, and they wanted to do the same thing. Think about what, what would be erased. Everything in Washington, D.C., because half of Washington, D.C. is a museum, basically. The Smithsonian Institute, for example. Not just that. The Lincoln Memorial, the World War II Memorial, the Vietnam sure. Memorial, the Capitol Rotunda. Those are the symbols of our of our society, of our, of, our, of our government. Every single thing that would make it unique to us, if that were to go away, even if we were still alive, what would we be able to, to fight for? What would we be able to recreate? There is tremendous power in symbolism. 
Yeah. And it is true. It has been true from the ancients all the way to today. The moment where some French caveman decided to, I shouldn't even say the word caveman, but the moment that some... shouldn't even say the word French, to be honest. <laughs> France well, didn't exist at the time. Right. The moment, <laughs> the moment that some primal man, circa France, two and a half million years ago, decided to put a horse on a wall, we acknowledge the power of symbolism. And well said. And we have put it in many different ways now. I mean, now the media has just exploded. We have the internet, we have visual art, we have television, we have film, we have radio, we have architecture, right? We have graphic design now, commercial art. It'd All be a those... lot harder to do that today than it would have been. But not impossible. Not impossible, no. But But think about... The fact that they didn't have as much as we have today in terms of preserving our history, in terms of existing somewhere even outside of the United States. And if you can take your mind to that scenario and imagine yourself putting yourself in that situation, if you feel an overwhelming sense of fear, that is why we need to talk about this. I agree completely. And let's let's help put it into perspective for our listeners who, who are, I'm sure, familiar at least with the events of the Second World War, but perhaps less familiar with the true scope of what the Nazis tried to do in the eradication of the cultural identity of those who they deemed not fit for humanity. Right. Uh, and we're not just talking about the Jews. We're talking about any culture that produced art. Any non-Germanic culture, essentially, yeah. yeah. Any culture that produced art, that, like the Slavic people, for example. That's a huge thing that was left out of the, the Monuments Men, was the desire to wipe out all Slavic people and their culture as well. Yeah, we forget that Hitler killed almost 10 million people, or over 10 million people, in the in the Holocaust, about six million of those were, from what we can tell from our records, uh, were, were Jewish descent. Yeah. What about the other four or five million people? Right. What about the thirty million Russians who died? It, it, which we never talk about either. Right. right. We don't. Remember, there was a huge, huge toll that the Russian people took in that war, and, and let's admit it. Also, a lot of them were killed by Stalin. There's there's no disputing that. But it was the the war itself and the the sheer amount of civilian deaths that the Russians yeah. suffered was enormous compared to any other country yeah. in that war. And here's the great irony of the Third Reich. They use the symbolism of the Roman eagle, right? That's above the swastika. And I find that, I don't think they called it the Roman eagle. They, I think they called it just the falcon, right? Or whatever it was. It was an eagle. Yeah, it but was, it was an it eagle, was right? It was an eagle, yeah. The Romans, when they conquered, they saw the value in the people they were conquering. They saw that there was something that they could use that would make their empire better. Right. right. So they assimilated it. Yes, they they adopted Roman culture, but the Romans also adopted their culture. So why we have the Roman pantheon, yeah. you know, the Nazis didn't do that. They sure. were so they were the inversion of that. They were and yet they used the symbol of, of assimilation. Oh, absolutely. And the Romans embraced uh, the scholars and the art of the periods and, and the people in time that had come before them. And those are people, like you said, that they assimilated into their empire later. But they they looked at those who came before as teachers. And whereas the Nazis looked at them as a threat. A threat to their power and their ideals and so they try to wipe them off the face of the earth and when we talk about the reality and scope of the nazi plunder of europe it's kind of hard to imagine but we're talking about nearly five million pieces of fine art that were forcefully removed from their owners creators countries and shipped back to germany and its allied nations yeah. such as austria for example and then distributed to not only the upper-class elite Nazis, but also to what would become you know, museums that are still around, that still possess many of these, these pieces of art. It's funny, because this whole month has been kind of culminating together, when you think about it, because we can touch upon monuments that we've already talked about. 
Hitler was, in a sense, trying to build his own Acropolis, yeah. right, in Berlin. And he had to have his, he was having this grand museum that was going to be, like, the epicenter of, of not just Germanic art, but of art all over Europe. That was to be in his hometown of uh, Linz in oh, Austria, sorry. Oh, actually. sorry, thank you, Linz, thank you. Yeah. Sorry, my apologies. And let's put things in perspective for a second. The Louvre, which is, I think, one of the biggest art museums in the world, if not the biggest, has 100,000 pieces of art on display. Five million. This is 50 times as much as yeah. what can be held in the Louvre. It's an absurd amount of art that was that was taken. And just to speak on that museum for a moment, these plans that Hitler had right up to the very end of the war, he was even preparing for after his death or in the event of his death for the museum to still continue, believe it or not. And we're talking about nearly 30 miles worth of galleries were meant to be the the final completed museum for the for the what would, was going to be called the Hitler Museum. And in it would house these great masterpieces, these great treasures, but only the ones that Hitler deemed to be perfect representation of, of Germanic Nazi propaganda. Right. And because remember, he was an expert. Right. He was an artist. Well, well let's talk about that for a second. Because <laughs> so the movie we used as, part, as a big tenet of our research was The Rape of Europa. A brilliant documentary. It's available on Netflix, by also the way. Also an accompanying book and audiobook. Fantastic. Absolutely yeah. fantastic. Yeah. And let's not forget that Hitler was a failed painter, right? And let's be honest. You look at his paintings and they... They're not terrible. He would have done better as a sketch artist, to be honest, because his he, he understands perspective. He understood lines. He understood, to a degree, color. But what he lacked was dimension. And I don't mean pers- to confuse dimension with perspective. His... Art wasn't texture, you know. It was it was very bland. It was very unexpressive. And what he couldn't quite get was why the more modern masters of the early 20th century were getting so much better work, so much more praise for what he deemed was lesser work. And this goes down to the fundamental argument of, well, some people hate modern art because it loses, it throws away centuries of progress toward being able to perceive reality. Yeah. Right. But modern art is the whole modernist movement was about, well, it's not about that. You know, modern art became about the expression, not so much about the uh, the re- recreation of, of a world around us. And he just kind of rejected that idea flat out. Yeah. Anything that involved surrealism, cubists. So Picasso, basically. Picasso, uh, anyone who broke the mold, anyone who, who dared to venture out from the great masters of the 19th century and beforehand, these folks were deemed as degenerate and their art was deemed as degenerate and uh, to the point that when hitler this failed art student finally came to power one of his missions was to put together an art exhibit highlighting these pieces uh thousands of these pieces and they were to be sent around germany and they were to be the uh the example of what not to revere it was quite literally you know called you know the de- degenerate art expedition or exhibition and what is horrific that at the end of all of this, after millions of people went through to gawk and openly disgrace these beautiful pieces of work and these these great artists' achievements, uh, many of them were taken out into courtyards and burned. Yeah. And this is not unusual for the Nazis. They burned books, they burned manuscripts, they burned just about anything that did not represent themselves, uh, anything they deemed as a threat, and they destroyed thousands upon thousands of these pieces. Others were brought in and auctioned off to buyers in other countries, used to help fuel uh, the Führer's coffers and, and bring money into into the Reich. 
Some were even hidden away by the very art collectors whose responsibility it was to sell them. And those were kept as private caches, one of which was just recently rediscovered uh, just back in 2010. This was in Munich, Germany, the son of one of those art distributors. He, uh, his, uh, his father, Heidelbrand Gerlitt, I think I'm saying that right, was responsible for, during that exhibition, like I said, selling off a lot of those pieces. But he kept nearly 1,500 of them, kept them in a apartment, and then uh, claimed that they were destroyed um, during firebombing in the later stages of the war when much of Germany's greatest cities were, were destroyed. He completely lied. He died not too far after the war, but his son inherited this collection and has been quietly selling off pieces one by one over the years to support himself. Uh, In 2010, he was discovered crossing the border into Germany with about $10,000. And even though he didn't have to declare where he had it from, he didn't have any kind of receipt for it, so they kind of got suspicious, put him under surveillance. A year later, they found this cache of his hidden artwork. Can you guess what the approximate value of the pieces are the approximate value Mm -hmm. of what's left so of the 1500 paintings that they rediscovered that were hidden in his particular cache i'm gonna make a big number here okay i'm gonna guess about two billion dollars so about half of that but still that's a billion dollars worth of money about and this is an estimate right this could raise or fall but about 1.34 billion dollars that's still a that's about what I actually... I was really thinking 1.5, but I wanted to shoot higher. So that's actually... Wow, that's that's astounding. Yeah, and, and this is recent. This is just in the past couple of years. And I think that we'll talk a little bit more, I think, towards the end of this podcast about the modern repercussions. What do we do now? But let's, let's try not to get off too far off a topic and get back to kind of the point um, that we were at before. Because while certainly that first example of... Of plundering was more for the eradication of certain things that were considered to be undesirable. There was then this desire, of course, to take as much as they wanted, uh, that they wanted to highlight and show off in places like the Führer Museum. Right. And many of that came from Jews. Now, it happened for a very obvious reason, and that was because of the Nuremberg Laws. The Nuremberg Laws were passed decreeing that all German Jews had no citizenship and therefore no rights and no rights to their property. It would be just a few short years later that many people would start to be round up and thrown into ghettos. And during this time, their possessions were confiscated by the Reich, sent to warehouses, evaluated for their value, and then redistributed into Germany and or stored to raise the money that the the country was, was slowly gathering as a result of this. Of course, one aspect of that was the confiscation of pieces of art. There were very many wealthy individuals out there who had private collections, whether they had been commissioned for them and or they had simply purchased them at auction or what have you. They had these beautiful collections of art and these were all confiscated by the Nazis. And as they broke out into war and went into other countries, uh, this simply continued, but in a much, much greater scale than what had led up to it in Germany. Yeah, it's unbelievable what they had done. And it doesn't just go to... What we were kind of alluding to earlier, it doesn't just talk about what they did with the Jews' possessions, because when they invaded Poland, what they did to Poland was... was Atrocious. Obscene. It was obscene. They they destroyed the castle, which was their seat of of their of power, right? It was the seat of the parliament and of the monarchy. The, the Warsaw Castle It was, was first stripped of all of its 
uh, ornamentation. Uh, and then was actually held hostage throughout most of the war. Yeah. Most of the war it stood. But they had dug bore, or sorry, they had bored holes into the foundation. But they basically rigged it with dynamite so yeah. that they could destroy it at any moment. Exactly, which is what they did during the Warsaw Uprising. Uh, when the Russians were invading into Poland, kicking the, the Germans back, and the people of Warsaw rose up in some of the most heroic fighting of the entire war and attempted to kick out the Nazis to allow the Russian army to in. Um, they were unfortunately beaten back. But these folks lost so much uh, as a result. And um, it's, it's a shame to see such a beautiful monument blown to pieces. But from that foundation, from the rubble of Warsaw, because most of it was bombed to oblivion during that yeah, rebellion. Thankfully, it's been, since been rebuilt. It, and has restored. Been, it has been rebuilt and restored. And it will never be back to its former glory, but it is certainly shows the resilience of these people. Yeah. Poland, God, Poland has the worst luck out of just about anyone in Europe, any country in Europe, I should say, any one country, uh, they get invaded by just about everybody. Yeah, well, let's put that in perspective, right? The the Poles were completely invaded by the Nazis, and then when Soviets, Russia was going through and taking back the eastern half of Europe in their conquest to basically take out Hitler, they also took Poland with it. Well, that's mostly true, but remember, it was Hitler and Stalin who made an agreement originally when Poland was invaded that they would split it between them. So the sure. Russians had already been in a good chunk of Poland. They had just pushed forward throughout the rest of Poland to kick out the, the Russians. Right. One way or another, the Poles have just been screwed. And it's not fair, because they have a very ancient culture, steeped rich in culture. history, yeah. very, very rich. And you can see that in the art that has been preserved. Yeah. What's interesting, whereas Warsaw, however, was considered to be predominantly Slavic in its cultural or its ethnic background, I should say, Krakow was considered to be very Western. It was considered Germanic, so that it was preserved by the, by the Third Reich. And with it were preserved several very important pieces of art. Uh, in Krakow, you had the, the Wittstaus altarpiece in St. Mary uh, Basilica, which is absolutely incredible. It's 43 feet tall. As life-size human figures that were carved out of wood. Amazing sculpture. Amazing sculpture. Absolutely incredible. And the local people of Krakow tried to hide it from Nazi invaders. Unfortunately, they failed. Uh, it was found and taken out of Krakow. But they were looking for pieces exactly like that, because this was created uh, by Wittstaus, who was a German, or a Bavarian, I should say, uh, sculptor who had come on in and while it had been restored several times they were looking for pieces of this so-called Germanic art that they could rescue air quotes it's not the only piece however that was uh that was found in that area several other very famous pieces including uh, Leonardo da Vinci's lady with an ermine uh, Rembrandt's landscape with a good Samaritan and Raphael's portrait of a young man were all actually held by Hans Frank who was the general governor of Poland also called the Jew Butcher of Krakow. Wow. Uh, he oversaw the concentration camp in Krakow as well as part of his responsibilities and was responsible for one of the worst death camps uh, and concentration camps in, in, in all of the Reich. Uh, horrible, nasty little man who was hung at Nuremberg. But he also had in his possession... The as Nuremberg trials, to be Nuremberg clear. trials. Yes. In Nuremberg. So, yes. yes, he was hung in Nuremberg. This also shows off these, again, these Nazi elite who wanted to have these famous pieces for themselves and in their own personal collections. Besides him, I think probably the most notorious was uh, Reich Marshal Hermann Goering, who was essentially Hitler's number two man. He was a fat, pompous, 
Little Romantist. Right. He was the head of the Luftwaffe. Luftwaffe, yes. The German Air Force. He was a fighter pilot veteran. Uh, very flamboyant. Very always flamboyant. With, always with the big flashy medals. And, oh, it's awful. Yeah. From the very actually, beginning. There's actually a, a sketch of uh, Sid Caesar during our show of shows in the late 40s that mocks Goering. And they didn't, you know, have him play in Portly, but there's this whole bit where he's this German officer who's gotten the big, you know, medals and everything. Mm-hmm. And he's like, Hans! You forgot to shine all the medals, you know? And this is a bit where, like, they're shining all the medals. And, no, you forgot to make my buttons shining as well. <laughs> you know? It's it's very funny. He's a nasty figure from history. He was not very well educated. He relied on this aura of grandeur to elevate himself above others, right? So that's why he was big on the shiny medals and wearing the cape and all that. And proved everybody that he was impressive. Yeah. Exactly. And in addition to that, it also meant collecting art. And he was probably one of the least qualified people to collect art. Sure. Uh, he was very indiscriminate. He simply traveled to Paris and other places where he knew where they had collections of art stored. And he kind of hummed and hawed a little bit and tried to appear as cultural uh, as possible and then just picked a piece more or less and had it sent back to his uh, retreat. Right. Which was this palatial house. It was This house is in, insane and uh, in how big and how uh, ornate it, it is. It's It's... And this is his summer home, or his country home. It's unbelievable. Yeah, he spent not a whole lot of time there, but it was more or less to create, again, like I said, this uh, this aura of him being a cultured and learned man. Yeah. Uh, he had an enormous collection of wine in his cellar. I mean, this thing went on forever. Uh, I, there's estimates I've heard of like something like half a million bottles of wine were collected and stored at this place. So let's put that in perspective. If Let's say you were a complete drunkard, and you drank two bottles of wine a night. And this is by yourself, mind you. This is not having friends over. But okay, let's 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 even be fair. Let's take the personal disorder out of it. Let's just say maybe he entertained every night. And he went through two bottles of wine a night. Every day of the year. How long would it take you to go through that? <laughs> through that, that, that wine cellar? They would have all died by the time they had gotten through all that wine. Yeah. You know? Ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. Um, by 1945, it was estimated that just at his country estate, he had close to 2,000 pieces of art. I mean, that's... That's enormous. <laughs> yeah. For a private collection, it's it's that's what some museums carry. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And he did it in such a sick and twisted way because he always tried to create the aura of legality behind it. Uh, and I think that's why he was so featured in this film, right? Because there's a part of the film where he travels to Paris and they have the private collection, which is almost exclusively confiscated from Jews because just like Germany did, the Vichy government in France also passed a law stating that German, or excuse me, that Jews had no rights and they were able to confiscate their property and deport them. And so, you know, it, it makes perfect sense that he would go and do that because that was legal at that point. Now it was legally owned. There was documentation for it. Even though they were documenting horrible atrocities, they were still documenting them. And as such, they considered them to be okay. It shows you that sick mindset that uh, many of these individuals like Hermann Goering had. Yeah. Yeah, it is quite perverse. As the war continued you found that a lot of Europe's art was now being gathered up and the war was beginning to intensify. And by 1943, the Allies were finally really fighting back. Hitler had waged this blitzkrieg, right, this lightning war against most of Europe and taken most of Europe by surprise. Uh, I mean, my God, look what happened to the French at the Maginot Line. And they were completely and totally unprepared as Hitler passed through Belgium and into France, uh, overwhelmed them, and Paris was lost only three weeks later. Yeah. Uh, so this was very, very quick that so much of Hitler's success happened. 
But then by 1943, we kind of turned the tables because Hitler made a very fatal error in allying himself with Benito Mussolini. Mussolini did not have the skill and tactful mind that Hitler did possess. He had nothing like that. And his push in the North Africa campaign really ended up becoming a disaster. Hitler had to send in troops with, with Rommel, who was one of the most famous tank commanders in all of history, later famous for actually uh, plotting to assassinate Hitler and, and committing suicide as a result of a failed attempt at that. But he had to send in this renowned German general to take back control. And what happened is everything just starts, fell apart. Uh, the British and American and French forces were able to go in there and kick them out and started the offensive on mainland Europe in Italy. A lot of people forget about this because they remember Normandy and they remember the invasion of Western Europe through the British Isles. But they oftentimes forget about the Allied campaign in Italy. Yeah, I mean, really, they, they tried to attack from as many sides as they could. Right. Once America got involved in the war, they're like, okay, no, we're ending this. Exactly. Yeah. With that, however, started to be the realization that America was mobilizing. Yeah. America, with its British allies, was going to invade Europe. And there had to be rules for that invasion. Sure. Because we're dealing with thousands of years of priceless history represented in initially what was on the forefront of their minds were the monuments and churches and, you know, historic centers of some of Europe's oldest cities. And they were going to be directly in the line of sight. So that's when we start transitioning more to this conversation about the actual monuments men. Because in 1943, the Roberts Commission was brought together to essentially outline how we would treat these monuments as we invaded Europe. And who would be the people who would designate these targets as off-limits and go into the actual war zones themselves and be there to assist in their preservation. Because right. you can only dictate what happens on our end. You can't dictate what happens on the enemy's end. Of course. Yeah. And the and sides can change quickly, right? So territory can pass in and out of those hands very easily. So they had to have also a plan in place for evacuating a lot of these materials. And I think this is actually a good point for us to now kind of switch gears a little bit. So this Roberts Commission that we're talking about um, of course, was very famously signed into existence by President Roosevelt, FDR. Okay, well, um, here it is, opening up again. Wonder who it's going to be this time. My lord. Hello, boys. President Roosevelt. The one and only. Well, actually, there's been... Two, uh, go yeah, ahead. Well, didn't he have a cousin? Yes, good old Teddy. Died before, before my time. Anyway, I've come to you today to talk to you about Amazon.com. Really? What would you like to talk to us about? It's a wonderful marketplace where you can go and you can find dozens and dozens of Amazon war pieces. That's right. Chest plates and spears and bows and arrows uh, and Mr. gladius Rose, swords. Uh, and... It's not literally an Amazon marketplace. It's not. No, there's this little thing called the internet these days. It's all online. You can buy pretty much anything you want. I mean, you might be able to find like little Is that Amazon like the radio? trinkets. It's kind of like the radio, but with pictures, and you can buy things. My God, I know it's a, it's a little overwhelming. Yeah, 
But you can find amazing things on it, like the very books that we're talking about, like the documentaries that we're talking about today. You can find uh, just about anything on Amazon.com, and uh, we'll have several fresh, brand new links for you to click on that will take you to some of the, the great resources that we've talked about in today's podcast at the end of the show. Yes, quite. I remember I had once said that there is nothing to fear but fear itself. Well, I'm afraid of the internet. That's okay, Mr. Roosevelt. Most people over the age of 65 are. Well, boys, it's been a pleasure, but I'm needed elsewhere. Goodbye, Mr. Roosevelt. Goodbye. Well, that was different. I like yeah. that. Yeah, that was, um... That's what... How many presidents we've had now? That's two, right? Because we had Kennedy here before. That's right, yeah. We kind of got a president thing going on. Mostly uh, in the 20th century, however. Yeah, we keep getting world leaders. It'd be interesting if we just get kind of like a random person from some point in history. Yeah, like like Bob the sheep farmer. Sure. Yeah, that'd be interesting. Or Norman the tosher. <laughs> <laughs> from a family of toshers. <laughs> <laughs> well, now that we uh, we had the interesting conversation with uh, with Mr. Roosevelt all about Amazon and his fear of the internet, uh, shall we... Uh, Shall we get back to the uh, the episode? Yeah, let's. So, as you were saying, <laughs> President Roosevelt had ordered a commission. Well, I shouldn't say he had ordered it. He, he had approved a commission. Sorry, yeah. He, well, okay, but nevertheless, he he had to issue an order to, to put it into place. But yes, he had approved a commission to have a unit or a series of units go in and try to preserve as much as they could when they were going through Europe. Exactly. They were, they were meant to go there and help educate Allied forces uh, about what not to destroy. Uh, something that Eisenhower would reiterate when he was talking about the invasion of Europe. Uh, and he made this a very clear order to all invading Allied troops. Right. Just to clarify, Eisenhower was a general at this point. <laughs> Correct. Not President Eisenhower at that moment. Yeah. So I think at this point it's fair that we give a, a warning out there, a spoiler warning about the movie. And it's kind of funny that we're doing that considering we're talking about history and Let's face it, history is a spoiler. It's kind of already been done before. But if you weren't familiar with the details of this history, a lot of this will come as a surprise and might kind of ruin the movie for you a little bit. So if you want to pause, go see the movie, then come back and listen to the second half of this episode, you are by all means welcome to do so. Uh, we already got you to listen to the advertisement, so we're good. We'll, we'll, we'll wait. We'll wait. Welcome, Welcome back. back. Hi. How was it? Were you just as disappointed as I was? Oh, dude, you know what? <laughs> you, you had your popcorn and you had your... Uh, Butterfingers. Your Butterfinger BBs. You know what? It, it was a, It was a jer- enjoyable experience. It was a good movie. I enjoyed it as a movie. Only that. That's, that's all you should enjoy it as. No. It should be a movie. No, it needs to teach and educate and tell us who these real heroes were. Because that's what they were. They were heroes. I really honestly, truly believe that. I believe that all the people who were involved in this project put themselves and their lives at risk, some of them losing their lives, in the name of preserving the culture of these these people who were near to eradication. And that is a very noble cause. So let's talk about that. Okay. Let's talk about these people. Now that you have just the slightest inkling an understanding of the scope and scale of this plunder. Let's let's talk about these people who were keen bringing this back. Because in the movie, there's a character, Lieutenant Frank Stokes, who is based on a real person, uh, George Stout, Captain George Stout. And Stout, who was a Harvard graduate, uh, was an art conservator, uh, quite well known in his field, and had actually, at the beginning of the war, created an organization called the American Defense Harvard Group. 
And it was their goal to help educate the United States government and army and prepare them for the invasion of Europe. So eventually this would be the the cornerstone to the Roberts Commission. Even though George Stout, who was the original pen and creator of, of this organization and the pamphlets that went out as a result of it, uh, had since been actually put into active duty. He was a reservist and he was put into active duty uh, when the Roberts Commission came into existence. So that whole scene in the movie where he's standing there pleading with FDR to put together all of this, that was completely fabricated. Nothing like that happened. And let's face it, with the technology of the time, switching those slides as quickly as they did kind of pissed me off. I have a few little quirks about the movie as well, uh, just in terms of general historical would accuracy. Helped, would it have helped if they had a cutaway of a guy who just kept loading slides into the projector and kept sliding them back and they forth? They did a little bit, but they only showed him for like a second. And I'm sorry, then after that, everything was just too quick. Because well. the they had two slides at that time. Two slides. That's all you could do. Push it all the way through to the left. Pull it all the way through to the right. That's all you had. I'm just saying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Shut up. You know I'm nitpicky about these kind of things. The point is, though, that whole scene didn't exist. Um, however, George Stout was approached uh, by that very commission, by the organizers of it, when he was in the military and drafted to be a monuments officer. And that's what we're talking about, right? We're talking about these people who were then, and very few of them, at one point, there may have only been as many as 12 monuments officers in the European front lines. That's it. Hmm. Their numbers would later explode to about 350. I shouldn't say explode. That's still a really small number. But they would inflate to 350. Uh, but most of that would be post-war. And that would be the conservation teams who were brought in after trainload of artifacts and sculptures and beautiful paintings were, were brought to these... Um, organization points right throughout europe for catalog restoration and then redistribution back out into right into europe there's one core piece that we have to mention and again this is a spoiler alert so there's there is one character who is actually a real person and that is the librarian character that was played by kate blanchett or well, again, or at least based maybe but, i should say based can yeah can we say that because to be honest these were all based on real people right and some of their core personality traits and who they were are present in a way, and others just completely miss the mark. So let's say that the one that is probably the closest in terms of accuracy, accurately right. representing the character, Claire Simone. Yeah. And she is inspired by an actual person, though. Right, which is who is Rose Villard. Exactly, Rose Villard, who is yeah. a French national hero, uh, a Legion of Honor reciprocant. Yeah, and she's really quite brilliant. And the one piece that is true historically as well as concurrent in the book or in, in sorry, i should say in the movie which is based off of a book right. i should say that is that she had this photographic memory for everything was being moved and she was just this quiet secretary in the background basically yeah but documenting every piece of art where it was going from and where it was going to she i believe was working for had been working for the louvre at one point but then she or she was in oh, sorry she was in a muse another museum where pieces were moved to from the louvre well, I think we're getting a little ahead of ourselves. Okay. If it's okay with you, I'd like to return to, to Rose Villar okay. in a moment. Okay. She's very important. I think certainly she bears talking about. But um, let's, let's talk a little bit about how we get to her. Because okay. we're talking about 1943, the commission coming together and those first monument men being organized. And there was actually someone in the movie who was never even spoken about. 
who was probably one of the first monuments men in Europe. Uh, and this is Captain Dean Keller. Now, Dean Keller spent all of his time during the war in Italy. And he actually coined the original phrase, or the original uh, nickname, for the Monuments Men. You know what, what they were called before? No, I know I don't. The GIs called them the Venus Fixers. Oh, it's, no, that's right. I did hear that. Yes, the Venus Fixers. Okay. As if they were there to somehow put arms on the Venus de Milo. <laughs> like, she needs fixing. She doesn't need fixing. She's fine. I tell any woman who wants to have plastic surgery to, to look at that I, as a perfect I get example. the symbolism behind it, though, because the Venus de Milo had arms they were damaged in 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 a battle right so the the whole metaphor is that they're there to prevent that from happening right yeah and she looks great without him i'm just sure (laughs) i think eric has an armless fetish (laughs) anyway captain keller who represents exactly who these people were they were folks who were thrown into a regiment who it was their sole duty them alone to be responsible for essentially scouting out these famous monuments and places of historical importance and making sure that people didn't blow them up. They did so with very little resources. They did so with very little support from their commanding officers. And I can't emphasize this enough. They did this alone. They didn't do it in these little ragtag groups of, of fellow officers, all a band of brothers. That wasn't the situation, right? There were plenty of examples of that throughout the war in terms of soldiers who were together in their regiments and platoons, but not the Monuments Men. And I think that's where the the movie is most misleading, because we see just post the invasion of Normandy, a whole bunch of these guys landing on the beach. And just prior to that, the Frank character, who the real person being uh, George Stout, is going around recruiting people, pulling them into the ranks. Uh, Some of them are middle-aged. Some of them are overweight. Some of them should never be in a military uniform. They're all put through basic training and and just kind of thrown onto the beaches of Normandy. And for most of the characters, that is far from true. For a lot of the people, after the war was finished, that was kind of the case, right? Because they had to go and enlist in the military in order to do this. Basic training is part of being in the military. Sure. So it doesn't matter what branch of the military you're in, you've got to still go through that basic training, even if you're a monuments man. So... That is true. But most of these folks who were on the front lines were actually in pretty good shape. Some of them might have been a little bit older, but no so older than some of the older folks in the in regiments normally. Right. right? And I think late the, 30s or during, 40s. Exactly. I was going to say, none of them are really older than their early 40s, I think. Yeah. And most of these folks were reservists. They were people who had already signed up and were waiting for deployment. So that is grossly inaccurate as well. I get kind of why they did it, though. I get why we see them together, because it allows for the narrative of the movie to flow. It allows for these emotional scenes to happen. It allows for the creation of friends, friendships and bonds between the characters. Right. And it also sets them up as kind of an underdog type character as well. But the truth is, is not there. These folks did not meet together. They did not travel through Europe together. They were all sent to different places. They had very little, if any, contact with each other. And George Stout, who was eventually going to be more or less a leading figure in the organization of all the looted pieces, probably knew of everyone else's existence, but I don't think he had any kind of right direct friendship or, or contact yeah. with them. Well, so therein lies the how we get to Rose, because they had to figure out well, one, where were the pieces being stored? And two, how do we identify all of them, right? I mean, these right. guys were, were, Stout was an, was an art scholar. But that being said, 
you know, he doesn't have an encyclopedic knowledge sure. of, of all of it. And he's not in Europe. He doesn't know. Exactly. But there was one person who did. Right. right? And that was Villard. Kind or of, the character Claire Simone. Right? right. Exactly. Because she had been quietly documenting all the art pieces going through the museum she was working in. And where they were going, and uh, the color coding was used in the movie. I don't know if that was true. That's true. That that those pictures of the document that she has are based on the real surviving document of Rose Villard. Yeah. So she basically had this whole journal, this whole ledger that pinpointed uh, approximately where about twenty thousand pieces of right. art were being taken out of France. Right. So. In, in the long run, it was nowhere near the amount of what was ultimately plundered. No, but it was a good starting point. Yeah. And that could lead to other discoveries. And that's the idea that the film had behind it, right? So, of course, they send in their person who understands French to meet up with her and learn once Paris has been liberated. Or I should say just before Paris gets liberated. Because he's, he's still there with the French underground, which she was supplying information to and getting information from. Uh, and this is the character of James Gardner. Right, who is played by Matt Damon, who is based off of the actual James Rorimer. Rorimer uh, was, I think, a lot more interesting character than the actual Matt Damon character. The funny scenes in the movie where his French is really terrible and everyone tells him to stop speaking French, it's great for the comedic aspect of it, but the actual James Rorimer was fluent in French. He knew French very well. He had family who was actually living in France who you know, partially owned a home there that he was able to stay at and hide at uh, during his time while he, was, while he was there. But most of his time, I shouldn't even say hide, because I don't even think he was there before the liberation of Paris. I'm pretty sure he came in after the liberation of Paris. So that whole bit about him sneaking in may have actually also been made up. Uh, I haven't done too much research into that, so I can't verify that. I might be wrong. He was a big name in the art world, however. He was absolutely the curator of the medieval collection at the Met. Absolutely brilliant. Extremely intelligent. And was actually handpicked by one of the organizers of the Roberts Commission, who was his former professor that he worked under, and then later a colleague of his at the Met. Uh, so he was definitely recruited for, for obvious reasons. He was the perfect person to be able to go in there and gain the trust of the people who knew where this art was being taken. But it took time, and that is accurate. That is absolutely true. In this movie, we see him and um, the Claire Simone character kind of playing a game of cat and mouse, right? She's very resistant to give over any information because she's afraid that the Allies are going to essentially do what the Nazis did and steal the art. And that's true. Uh, Rose Villard really did believe that. And it took a good long time before she was able to warm up to, to James and finally reveal this amazing catalog that she had been collecting. Right. And let's face it, she was very unsuspecting. She was in her early to mid-40s. She wore a bun in her hair. She wore glasses. She wasn't the kind of exotic Kate Blanchett that we see in the movie. She was actually quite unsuspecting. Yeah. Though I will say that Kate Blanchett did a, a decent job of, of playing this character as an unassuming person. Kinda, until she then gets back to her apartment and lets her hair down and throws on some sexy outfit to try to seduce uh, the Gardner character. True, but that's the only moment in the movie where she's like that. Eh, kinda. I, okay, I'll give you that for the most part. But it just... I don't know. When we're talking about a French national hero, I think we should be giving her a little bit more respect than treating her character like that. And I feel like the actual Rose Villard was fascinating. You know, she spent all this time, um, and the museum that you're referring to is the, the Jaw de Palme in, in France. 
Uh, she had spent the time before the war as a volunteer there, and the curators of the museum actually handpicked her to stay around because they thought, oh man, she's the perfect person. She can give information to the resistance and help to give disinformation to the Nazis. And what was even better is that she spoke and understood German fluently, yet she never let it on to any German overseer in that museum. Hmm. The bits where Goering was coming there and picking out art, that stuff happened. Goering had visited the museum 10 times, uh, picking out art for his private collection. So that's absolutely real. Uh, so she had this opportunity to help out the Allies, and she eventually did and gave that information over, and like I said, it earned her a legion of honor for it, along with uh, James Rorimer, who also earned the same decoration from the French government, the highest honor that the French government can bestow upon a citizen uh, is the Legion of Honor, which is that's awesome, incredibly impressive. James Rorimer would later leave France, like in the movie. Uh, he would be actually promoted and then join the, uh, the Seventh Army as it invaded into Germany. And he actually used that information that was given to him to track down a good number, nearly 21,000 pieces, almost everything that had left France's private collections um, in the, the Nauschweinstein castle that famous Neuschweinstein castle in Germany that we see on the inspiration for Disneyland's castle and as the, the royal estate of Druidia in Spaceballs. Yeah, totally. And it's, <laughs> we it talked is, about. It is um, extremely striking. Like, you look at it from it, and if you, if it's, there's some pictures of it that are lit so well that it just, it looks so uh, whimsical and fairy tale esque It's a one beautiful castle. Let, let's, let's talk a little bit about that, too, because we're talking about a lot of where the art was going and it was going to these depositories. It was going to these places for distribution and then eventually to hide them and prevent the allies from finding them. Cause like I said, Hitler had actually, despite the fact that the, the Nero decree was written, uh, he had plans for even after the war for a Hitler museum to still exist. And I know they're kind of contradictory and we should talk about a little bit about what the Nero degree is. Well, let's just say right now, just like Nero, allegedly set the fires of in Rome. Rome. Mm -hmm. uh, this is at least at the time, right? The, the, uh, the now common conception is that he did not do that. But at the time, it was the common belief. So they said that if the Reich were to fall, if Hitler were to fall, uh, burn everything, destroy everything, leave right. no evidence left behind. And that is true. That was put out there. However, Hitler's generals generally did not receive the message because Albert Speer uh, did not allow it to go out there. Uh, Speer, who was Hitler's architect and also, of course, his uh, minister of, of armaments and defense, he had become disillusioned with Hitler towards the end of the war and now started to openly defy his orders. He was no longer um, surrounding himself by the Hitler elite. He was no longer visiting the Führerbunker. He was essentially cutting himself away and saw this order as, again, Hitler slipping into his furthest form of madness uh, and more or less refused to go along with it and most of the soldiers agreed despite what the movie would kind of have you right. believe even though the allies didn't know that so absolutely there was a sense of urgency of going into germany and trying to preserve these pieces sure uh because now it become clear yeah. and that the, the movie, art was being taken the movie makes one interesting uh plot point because they one of the german officers who in the movie claire had been uh, interacting with ends up getting found later by one of the monuments men hiding out as a farmer yes yes and as they arrest him they find a map and what's weird about the map is it's very unassuming it's just these marks of salt and potassium mines 
which seem to have no physical significance except for the fact that they are subterranean they're uh dry areas dark areas which is the perfect place to preserve priceless works of art and isn't it wonderful that the movie paints that picture for us so clearly yeah because it didn't actually happen (laughs) (laughs) it did in a way so okay the dentist that really did happen as funny as that scene is it's one of my favorite scenes in the entire movie not just because it's historically accurate because it's but because it's also really funny and we're talking about the Preston Spitz and the Richard Campbell characters, right? Uh, Richard Campbell was played by Bill Murray. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, uh, it's oh gosh, what's his name? Bob Bolobin. And these two are teamed up as these kind of, um, how do I want to say, unlikely friends. Yeah, unlikely allies, yeah. And it's kind of true. They were, in a sense, unlikely allies, the actual people. Uh, the Preston Spitz character was actually Lincoln Kirkstein. Uh, who was an intellectual. Uh, he had an enormous wealth of knowledge. He was an open bisexual. He was the kind of person you would not expect to be in the military. He's the kind of person that was totally brought into the Monuments Men for the purpose of being there to to provide his knowledge and support and in no way a soldier. Uh, whereas the Richard Campbell character, who was actually play, who was actually the based on the real person, Robert Posey, um, he was an arm, a member of the armed forces. He was not like Bill Murray's character, again, drafted in. He was an architect, and he was actually working for the Canadian Army uh, or Air Force designing runways for them when they selected him to be a member of the Monuments Men. And it's pretty obvious that Lincoln Kirkstein needed a little bit of support, a little bit of help from oh. someone who was an art appreciation or, or someone who was an appreciation of art, but maybe not on the level of Kirkstein. Right. Someone who could also hold the zone as a soldier. Yes. As well. And the whole bit in the movie about uh, Frank's character being so upset after his friend's death, a British officer who helped, you know, protect the, the altarpiece of Ghent uh, and the Madonna and child, Raphael's Madonna and child from being destroyed, all completely made up, all totally fictitious. None of those events actually happened. In fact, it was Kirkstein who was the one who was obsessed with Ghent trying to find this absolutely beautiful altarpiece uh, and the Madonna. He was the one who was there after the initial plunder who helped put some of those clues together himself. And uh, he was the one who was there at the salt mine in Alsace when they went and rediscovered those pieces in that one particular cache. Yeah. That was the same one in the movie where, you know, it was right down to the wire and the Russians were coming and they had to evacuate the area again totally fictitious yes there were russians in there was a trophy brigade as well there was there was a russian trophy brigade but they were nowhere near that area at the time uh it was totally for the suspense element of the movie things like that kind of bother me because you think about lincoln kirkstein who's an amazing person um he passed away not that long ago actually and he was immensely successful after the war he was actually the founder of the new york city ballet uh and its director uh, for years. Which they imply in the movie with the fact that he's observing a ballet when he gets the orders. Correct. So they allude to a couple things like that, but really an incredible person. And also, let's not downplay Robert Posey, who, who you know, was there in, in the Third Army with them, helping to protect art in Belgium and then later, later there in the mine. So these are all very, very important people. And that whole bit with the dentist is true. Uh, he had a toothache. Posey had a toothache. He went to have it looked at. The dentist was bragging about his son-in-law, who was also interested in art, who it turns out was actually the personal advisor to Hermann Goering. So not so much the Nazi that we see in the movie, right, who's the the guy who has, you know, 
Clay Planchette's brother killed Looks and like all that stuff. Looks like he would have come in like second in a Hitler lookalike contest. <laughs> exactly, right? His mustache was a little too long, but he was close. Um, no, instead he was this personal advisor to Hermann Goering, and so he knew a lot about you know the art and where it was going, and they ended up getting him to spill the beans. They ended up going and seeing him for dinner and convinced him that it was time to send that information and have that given out to the world. The uh, Walter Garfield character, the one who was played by John Goodman, mm-hmm. never teamed up with a Frenchman, never there when this Frenchman dies in his arms. That character had nothing to do with the movie except for, I guess they felt they needed a Frenchman. <laughs> I have no idea why he was even there. There is not a single Monuments Man that he is based off of. He is a completely fictitious character. Uh, and the Walter Garfield character is based off of Walker, Walker Hancock. And Walker Hancock was an accomplished sculptor. Uh, he was drafted in 1942, unlike the rather large and overweight John Goodman, who we see bumbling through uh, basic training, almost getting shot to death by live ammunition, which was, again, funny part of the movie. Totally fictitious. And uh, he was there in France actually writing handbooks with the, with the French army, uh, or I should say <laughs> the French army in exile, Going ahead and, and having them tell us exactly where things were that they shouldn't be blowing up so that he could send that out to the GIs. Uh, he was, however, instrumental in finding documentation concerning uh, the movement of art into Sigan, which is eventually where they find another one of those salt mines completely filled. And him and Stout actually meet up. This is one of the few instances where the movie is actually kind of accurate and that we do have a couple of monument men meet up, which is not surprising, though, considering they're meeting up at this huge cache and depository of hidden art. Right. They would need the experts there, more than one expert there, to confirm uh, which pieces were which. Absolutely. And I will, I will finish my rant in just a moment. I promise. But I do have to talk about the Donald Jeffries character, because it's the one that pisses me off the most. And I'm not alone in this. There's a lot of people who are actually very upset about the depiction of this character. In the movie, Donald Jeffries is this more or less silver spoon-fed Brit who has a terrible problem with drinking. Uh, It's implied that he gets himself in trouble and shames his father. And even though he's brilliant in the world of art, uh, he's deemed as being unworthy of any real serious work, right? No one takes him seriously. So, of course, they have to pick this person and bring him to Europe. He's the perfect person to bring to Europe to help save art. And, you know, he makes that speech about how I don't know. I don't remember exactly what he says, but he says, you know, you're just doing this for charity and you don't really believe in me. Clooney says, no, I did it because you're the best man for the job. Yeah. And they're they're very close to each other. They talk a lot. And then he goes off to Belgium. And this is the person I was talking about earlier, who was the one who was there when the Ghent altarpiece was taken, which is also an inaccurate depiction because part of the Ghent altarpiece was missing at that time, even though we see the entire complete Ghent altarpiece. In that scene, where no, it's no, taken. The, no. The Ghent was gone at that point. There was, it was. They were there. They were trying to for, to protect the Madonna. No, no, no. The Ghent was taken by the Nazis. Right. And when it was originally taken by the Nazis, it was not in its complete form. Correct. Parts of it were missing. That's all I'm saying. When we see them taken in yeah, the movie, it's, was, it's complete. No, I think you're getting the two confused because he was in Bruges when the Madonna is stolen. He's not there for Ghent. He's. It's a similar situation because it's also priests in a in a church. Oh, I see what you mean. Okay. Yeah. Be that as it may. The Ghent altarpiece is still inaccurately depicted in the movie. That's all I'm getting at. Okay. Okay. Um, the bit where he is protecting the Madonna then. Okay. And he ends up getting shot by that SS officer. None of that happened. 
this character doesn't exist in, in the real world. And they try to pass him off as being somebody else who inspired him just because the family is upset. But the actual person, Ronald Balfour, who was a British art historian, was actually attached to a Canadian division. He was there in Belgium where he was killed. And he was the first of the monument men to die. That is accurate. However, he was in Cleves, Belgium, and he was evacuating statues that were part of an altarpiece in that church when he stepped on an undetonated mortar. Oh, shoot. Which killed him. And he had been in Europe for a while, working, preserving art, doing exactly what the monument men are known for. And yet Clooney decides that we need to have some dramatic death for him to make him have meaning and have him have some sort of tragic background so that, you know, the audience feels good about his death. And I feel like it's kind of a cheap shot. You know, the the actual Ronald Balfour, to me, is a much more respectable character. You know, it's sad that he's he's died in this tragic way. And it's and my heart goes out to him and his family and to all those who who lost their lives uh, in the in the service of defending their their nations. But I, I feel like we've taken something away from Balfour's story by doing that in the movie. To the point where I would have been fine with them actually excluding the character, even though they don't talk about him, which is also kind of, you know, not so nice. Yeah. But if it helps preserve his integrity as a character, or as a person, I should say, I don't know. It was a definite creative choice, and, and not, everyone, not everyone's going to like it. I mean, I feel like maybe the movie could have been better served by telling the real story of these characters, or I should say people. I don't know. I keep saying characters. But I feel like... Even if it was kind of broken up, even if you saw different parts of different people's stories, I think that would have been fine. I'll tell you one thing, and I'll mention it briefly because I know we're running out of time here, and it's a shame because it's really important, and I really want people to go out and and learn a little bit more about it. They talk about a little bit in the documentary, The Rape of Europa, and I think it's worth you investigating more. But uh, we've heard a lot about what was going on in Western Europe. What was happening in, in Russia? Because remember, the Germans were invading Russia deep into Russian territory. They completely surrounded St. Petersburg. And in St. Petersburg is the the Hermitage. It was the the centerpiece for so much of Russia's art and history, uh, whether it be from Russian empire straight up through to the Soviet period, right? So it was four times bigger than the Louvre. It had an enormous collection, half of which was transported 11,000 miles away to Siberia. So think about the detail that uh, that went into all of that, the, the strategy, the planning, everything that went into making sure that that happened successfully. And what happens when the Nazis then completely besiege St. Petersburg? Well, half the collection is there. Who's going to protect it, keep it safe from looters? Who's going to keep it safe from shelling? Who's going to keep it safe from the elements because it was going to be winter soon? It was the museum staff that did that. Over 40 of them died in the process. Just that first winter. That's a story. I would love to see that that's, story told. That's true, but you can also... There is the other thing of the, that certain stories don't translate into film as well when you have multiple perspectives on it. The movie's intention, I think, was to focus on the American perspective of it, or the ally perspective of it. Not to say that the Russians weren't part of the allies. Of course they were. But that being said, so distantly removed from one another that it would have been very complicated and it would have made the story too convoluted if they were included in it. I think you I think you are misunderstanding what I'm saying. I think you're saying it you're saying it should be its own movie. Exactly. I think it deserves its own treatment. I would love to see a movie about the curators uh, and their staff at the Louvre because the entire French national collection was saved from Nazi plunder. There are those who say that if the 
the curators of that museum had been in charge of the military. The Nazis may very well have never made any landfall into <laughs> into France. Yeah. Because they were so organized. You know how many times the Mona Lisa was moved to keep it out of German hands? A dozen, at least. Six times. Okay, so. Six times. But it, its original transport out of the Louvre, along with thousands of other pieces of valuable art, the whole national collection, was sent to all these different villas, castles, homes, out in the French countryside. And they kept moving everything about. They kept changing locations so the Nazis wouldn't catch wind of it. Um, because the ERR was there. Uh, this was the the official group that was in charge of looting plunders in, uh, in occupied territories. And they were actively looking for, for everything. Uh, thankfully, they never got their hands on any of it because of these brave people. I would love to see that as a movie. I really would. I mean, it probably would make a very good, very good film. It, you probably won't see it in much in the United States, though. But it, you're right; it is a very captivating story. It would probably be very big in Europe. That's totally okay with me. Yeah, yeah, folks. This is a a big, big topic, and we'd like to know if you agree with Eric's assessments of the film or my assessment of, of the film, um, as well as if you've seen the Rape of Europa or read up on the, the subject. Please, we'd love to continue the conversation. Also, go out there and read The Monuments Men. Read the book, because this movie, while it says it's based on the book, really isn't. I mean, it uses it as source material for building this movie, but the actual book talks about these people that we were talking about. It picks six of these Monuments Men that we highlighted a little bit of their history and goes into a great deal more detail, far more than we possibly could in a short hour and however many minutes this podcast ends up being. Yeah, go out there. As we always say, don't take our word for it. And you know what? Go see The, the Monuments Men. I'm going to say it, because even though I I have a very different opinion on the movie than I think Brian does, I feel like I still enjoyed it as a movie. Appreciate it for its entertainment and its value in that sense. Appreciate the fact that the Allies were able to recover five million pieces of stolen art, even though a lot of it hasn't been returned to its original owners, and that's a whole other topic that we're going to have to get into at some point. Because it's not the first time in history art has been taken by a conquering army and then disputed over where it rightfully belongs. That can become a whole other topic. Mm. And I and please don't excuse us not having time for it as being dismissive of it. It just, we really don't have time to do it in this episode. We'll, we'll definitely cover it in the future because it's an important topic. Uh, and I am glad that the movie exists for one very important reason. Even if there is a bit of misunderstanding and misinformation that might come from it, I hope that it encourages people to go out there and research it on their own and find out the true story behind the people who are involved in this because it's the only way that will ever prevent things like this from happening again yeah and that's the big point yeah and it is touching people for that reason and i'm thankful for that i really am thankful for that i will say that we are not the first people to be covering this topic it's interesting because as of the night of this recording i have seen i don't know how many articles pop up just in the past 48 hours discussing much of what we're talking about right now and many of them feature the headline, the real men behind the Monument Man. Well, that's the point, is it gets the conversation going. Right. And I'm happy that that's happening. I agree. I just, I, I never expect to see history when I go to see a film, even if it's a historical film. I never expect to see history accurately portrayed. I, I, I always hope to see it and then am oftentimes disappointed. My friend, Gladiator. My friend, I think, I think you are setting yourself up for disappointment because it's I, just not the way it works. I think I could write and, and direct some fantastic movies that would be very entertaining and very compelling and would be as historically accurate as humanly possible. We'll see. We, we shall see. <laughs> 
Uh, folks, as always, uh, you can follow us on our social media, which we've talked about on Facebook and Twitter at Nerdonomy. Uh, but also follow us personally. I'm at Brian Moriarty. I'm at The Brickmont. And, uh, of course, as always, if you feel it, uh, you have it in your heart and in your wallet, if you like the content you've seen, please go to Nerdonomy.com, click on the donate button, and give us a little donation. Or if you don't have the means to donate, uh, use our affiliate links through our many blog posts or our ads that we've mentioned to... Uh, Help us out with a small commission. Seriously, sign up for Audible 30-day free trial. Honestly, if you don't like it, don't renew it. And we get a little bit of money as a result of it. Uh, and I think you might actually like yeah. it. I think Audible's great. Indeed. And until we meet again, stay nerdy. And tune into us next week, same nerd time, same nerd channel, nerdonomy.com. Bye-bye. Jackass. You could have told me you had rubber bullets. No. It's going to leave a welt.